Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at schoolstatus.com. You're listening to Class Dismissed, episode 200, and I'm your host, Nick Ortico. The New York Times says new data proves that kindergarten experienced a mass exodus last year. So what happens when those kids come back to school? And teacher unions adjust their stance on mandatory vaccinations. Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week it's episode 200, so we're reflecting on some of our favorite interviews over the past four years. Stay with us. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here, and I'm joined by friend, director of curriculum and instruction, and co-host of Classes Miss, Christina Pollard. Christina, how are you doing? I am doing pretty well. We are, I would say, one week in. Um, our teachers returned last Monday. Students returned Thursday. And we're all just so positive and so fired up about this year, while also being very cautious Um and, and, you know, monitoring information every day from CDC and Mississippi Department of Education. But we are happy to have our students back. Well, I love the optimism. I mean, it's no secret, I think, to anybody who listens to the show that um, we are currently in a hot spot here in the United States down in Mississippi. Um, so things have been a little scary. And it's clear, like even my Facebook feed, I know that sounds like a weird way to measure things, but it seems like I'm seeing more and more people whose spouses or them themselves are fighting with COVID right now. I just seem to know a lot of people that have been exposed. Well, are you seeing any of that within your, I, your world? I am. I am. Um, of course, we've had a few employees um, who may have been exposed or um, compromised, and so they weren't able to return with us. But I also saw an article recently where um, vaccinations, the, the percentage being so low in five southern states, that's what's making us, Mississippi, Louisiana, Alabama, Tennessee, and I believe Georgia, that's what's making us, in Florida, that's what's making us, um, you know, be considered hot spots. And um, that article was quite interesting. I guess I should have shared that with you uh, pre-show, but Mississippi, we've got to do better. Yeah, and the good news is because I, I think, unfortunately, fear is a motivator and it's been really one of the few motivators we have seen vaccination spike in those states you just listed within the past couple of weeks so that's good news but we're still lagging behind much of the country so we'll see how that plays it out confuses me a little bit though um also saw online like a really funny uh conversation between a couple of pe- people on twitter um and pretty much they were saying you know we've always used what we call vaccination passports, um, not to shift the conversation, but just a little bit, you know, you're not able to enter kindergarten without your, uh, you know, yeah, I think you uh, have school. It's like five different school. shots you have to have, right? Yeah. Immunizations. And then when you're ready to go off to college, you know, you got to have a tetanus shot and all those things before you can move into a dorm. Um, depending on where, you know, what type of job that you have, there may be some different vaccinations that you need. And so I do find it interesting that, you know, we're just we just have so many people spreading misinformation and it's impacting those that don't know any better or don't take the time to research it. And I'm kind of at a loss for where we are. And I would just really love to see us 
be able to move forward. Um, my child is a senior and uh, thinking about what all of the seniors across the nation went through last year and one of our local universities canceled um, a promotion ceremony recently mm-hmm. um, to protect their students. And there were people who earned different degrees that weren't able to, you know, walk. I want to see all of that go away. That actually leads us to uh, one of the first stories in the teacher's lounge today. And that is dealing with a shift um, by the stance of the American Federation of Teachers, the union, um, I guess yes. they're kind of shifting course. So AFT is now um, saying they're going to back mandated shots, at least in certain situations. Um, apparently, they're saying that it's if you're in an area where you're forward facing with kids under 12, they are suggesting that those teachers should be required. And in fact, it was the head of the AFT was on Meet the Press recently, and she said, I felt the need to stand up and say this as a matter of personal conscience, and um, it actually has to do with that idea that these kids can't defend themselves, and they feel like the teachers shouldn't expose those kids. What are your thoughts there? Well, I find it interesting that they went from kind of not necessarily having a clear stance um, to being so vocal, and I have to say that I appreciate the motive behind it is to protect children, um, but also should be to protect those educators, um, little ones coming in the building, spreading um, COVID and not having an idea. You know, in the very beginning, they talked about children being asymptomatic and it not impacting them as much. But we're seeing a big change in that um, with the Delta variant. There was an article out recently about the number of children that are in ICU and just just in the state of Tennessee and how they're about to run out of um, you know, beds in, in the ICU. And so I love that stance. I don't know legally if school districts can mandate it, but we certainly should be encouraging it and even creating opportunities for teachers to get their vaccinations. And we certainly should be um, mandating masks within our buildings. Yeah, I don't think that districts can. Um, I don't know the exact legalese there, the the idea that a district can force teachers to do it, but I know that states can. And apparently like California, right. New York, and Virginia, they're requiring all state employees to get inoculated. So um, New Jersey's requiring some workers in, in the healthcare industry. So it's just like we know that the state has that power. So it's interesting to see the, the teachers union kind of throw some weight behind it. I will say that NEA has, has kind of remained on the sidelines and they're like, that should be the Decided at the the local level. I want to chime in with a quick update. Um, between the short time that we recorded this episode and published this episode, the NEA updated their position on vaccinations and testing. In fact, the uh, president of the NEA, Becky Pringle, said, quote, It is clear that the vaccination of those eligible is one of the most effective ways to keep schools safe. Ms. Pringle left open the possibility that teachers who are not vaccinated could receive regular testing instead and added that local, quote, employee input including collective bargaining where applicable, is critical. Uh, I just wanted to make sure that we were accurate and up-to-date on the NEA's latest standing there. Listen, this whole situation is political. Mm -hmm. The states that you just named, and I'm not going to, you know, like, I'm not trying to put them under the spotlight, but stop and think about their leadership and what party they're with. And, you know, just think about what goes on in those states, how heavily populated they are. Um, If that happened in the South, I think there would be a revolt. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we do see the the extreme opposite, of course, over in Florida, where it, right. I guess districts aren't even allowed to require masks is is the law. And from what we understand, the governor yeah. is threatening to stop funding if they yes, do. Yes, yes, yes. That's insane. 
And I think some districts are saying we're going to require masks anyhow. And I guess it's kind of a, a standoff now, if you will. And we'll see well, how that plays off. Sad part about that is that everything you do, every decision you make, is supposed to be about children first. What is best for children. And then, of course, um, taking into consideration what is best for your employees. So I commend those superintendents who are making tough decisions to um, require masks to enter the school buildings within their district. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how legal it would be for the government to or for the governor, rather, to um, impose sanctions on their funding. I mean, it's federal funding, right? Yeah, at least a big chunk of it would be. I'm Mm -hmm. sure some of it is probably state, but um, and a little bit is, but at the same time, I mean, so you're going to hurt kids by taking away funding. You're going to hurt teachers. So yeah. I just think it, it that it sounds like empty threats to me. Um, another story that popped up in my feed this weekend actually uh, ties to the New York Times, and it's talking about the well, it was titled the kindergarten exodus. And we were talking about, are we seeing a spike in enrollment this year due to kids sitting out last year? We mentioned that in last week's show. Um, Well, Mm -hmm. apparently now we have the data to say, yes, there were a lot of kindergartners who sat out um, last year and the numbers are pretty staggering. Like for example, Jackson, Mississippi saw a 24% drop in kindergarten enrollment last year. There was a, a elementary school wow. in Hawaii that saw a 51%. Philadelphia saw a 28% drop and it's, and it's like that over much of the country. That's really staggering. You are absolutely right. But what, what really makes me want to unpeel that is, so if they did not attend kindergarten, Did they just wait because their state is not requiring um, students to attend kindergarten under the attendance, comprehensive attendance rule? Or did they homeschool? Were they in some type of uh, pre-K, you know, program um, during the day while their parents worked? I'd be really interested to see just how much they learned or did not learn. And uh, later on down the line, we talked about this before, too. Ten years from now, seeing the impact that COVID has on um, achievement overall, overall. Yeah, and so I guess that's going to be the million-dollar question for all these districts: is like, what do we do with these kids as they're now re-enrolling in our public mm-hmm. schools? Uh, and to give you a, a, I kind of highlighted a couple cities there. Overall, mm-hmm. the data, the first analysis of enrollment at seventy thousand public schools across thirty-three states. When you looked at that as a whole, kindergarten saw a nine point three percent drop. Um, so, I mean, it's pretty significant uh, across the country. They did find that it was lower income neighborhoods that actually saw mm-hmm. the biggest uh, change in enrollment. So here you are, uh, you know, you're, you're your district office and you're, mm-hmm. you could see a spike in enrollment, all these kids who are kind of coming in and, and they, some of them might be saying, hey, I'm ready for first grade, even though I wasn't here last year. And then some of them um, maybe saying, you know, where do I go? Do I go to kindergarten or first grade? Like what's going through your mind as you hear that? You're absolutely right. As a former principal, I would be inclined to say I would want them to attend kindergarten. Um, kindergarten readiness is so important to ensure that all students are reading by third grade, which is, you know, on grade level, which is a requirement in our state under the Literacy-Based Promotion Act. But I would also have to just, you know, find out if that's a local decision or if there's actually some type of regulation behind it, because the state of Mississippi does not require 
um, students to attend kindergarten. The other thing that would concern me, you mentioned that the decrease in students enrolling in kindergarten last year was in a lot of the high poverty areas. Um, I, we, we are serving in a high poverty area now, and we just started school, as I shared, and our numbers are you know, not as high as we'd like them to see. We're watching them very closely over the next week or so, but I would like for us to come back and visit this conversation in a few weeks and take a look at enrollment numbers and see you know, just how it's impacting us locally and maybe even, you know, across the nation. Yeah. And you mentioned like Mississippi doesn't require kindergarten. I looked up how many states do not require kindergarten and I was shocked at the number. It's 35 states that do not, 15 states do plus Washington, D.C. I was expecting that number to be, I don't know. I just figured that Mississippi was in the minority when it came to not requiring kindergarten, but we're actually in the majority there. Wow. Well, I'll be inclined to see if you know, maybe we're going to have to revisit that legislation. Yeah, that's true. And you had mentioned on a previous show, too, with the idea of um, these bills where they're talking about possibly funding universal pre-K. It's like, yes. we don't even require kindergarten and we're talking about having universal pre-K. I don't know. It's 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 a weird world we're in right now uh, when it comes mm-hmm. to whether or not we should be in kindergarten. Well, Christina, are you ready for today's bright idea? I am super excited about it. In today's Bright Idea segment, it's episode 200, and we are reflecting on our last 199 episodes. We've had so many incredible guests on the show. We've chatted with thought leaders from Stanford, Harvard, and MIT, and we've also had the privilege of sharing amazing stories and achievements from educators all over the country. Today, I want to highlight four interviews over the past four years that really stuck with me. First up, it's episode 109. We spoke with Nathan Menard. Nathan is the co-author of Hacking School Discipline, and he talked to us about using restorative practices. Restorative practices is the way that we approach each student when they're in conflict or to be preventative with that student. So what that means is we really focus on the relationships, building up those relationships. If relationships get damaged, how to repair those relationships with the students as well as ourselves. It's about letting them see, you know, where we're coming from, that empathy piece, as well as us understanding where they're coming from, their empathy piece as well. Nathan gives us a digestible look at the benefits of restorative practices and how we can start implementing them in our classroom. Yeah. So let's say, as you know, you got two students that get into an altercation fight. And typically um, some systems, what they would do is you would label that behavior and say, okay, this is your first fight. That's going to be a three-day suspension. After that three days, we're going to have you come back in. There might be a little bit of a touch base, but you know that's that's normally the process. With restorative practices, what it does is say, okay, let's let's talk to both these individuals. Let's see what de-escalation you know, I need to put into place. Because sometimes you do need to also have a suspension in place. But when those students return, or if they didn't end up leaving and they went to some sort of in-school suspension where they were away from each other, when they return, what you would want to do is do a conference with those two students and their parents. And during that conference, you ask a lot of empathy-driving questions, understanding how the other person felt, how the parents felt, how a fight really becomes a ripple effect for the entire climate of that classroom or that school, and then letting those two students understand how they impacted everyone else. After one of those conferences, you know, what we do is we come up with a plan of action about how to move forward and any other steps we need to take to repair the harm with what they with what they harmed in that school. So what it does is really um, builds up those two students back up as a whole. So then they feel like everything's being addressed. The parents feel 
like they're they're being heard as well. The teachers that were involved with the situation can be brought in so they feel like they can be heard. And then when they come back into that climate, they're reintegrated instead of just saying, okay, you're suspended, go for three days, come back in, don't do that again. It, it's more of a, hey, we're all in this together. Let's build each other back up. And these conferences don't take much time. I've got to ask, because you said you, you had a background in um, juvenile justice, and, and that's interesting. Like, what did what was your takeaway from, from that part of your career um, and yeah. headed into education? Yeah, so it, it was the, the best thing that's ever happened to me, in, in all honesty. I started out, I was 21 years old. You know, I, I graduated with a behavioral neuroscience degree. Um, I really wanted to work with at-risk and underserved, underprivileged populations. So I started working at a residential treatment care center as um, a full-time staff. I ran a violent and sex offender unit um, for three years. And then I moved up and I uh, went into a clinical role. But after a while, um, it really just opens up your eyes to the, these stories of these kids. So when I'm going into education, I'm, I'm, I'm I know the background of some of these these kids that have had such a rough background and going into their homes or working with their families or having them come into the residential treatment care center, taking them to court, you know, writing these, you know, reports about their lives, about everything that's happened to them. It really makes you think like, you know, if I saw this kid walking on the street, I'd say, oh, that, that kid looks like, you know, he, you know, he's probably not doing the best, you know, life choices. I should probably walk on this side of the street. And then when you start digging in, you're like, man, he's had this, 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 this happened to him. Like this kid just needs someone to care about him. He needs someone to help him out. And that's what I've done in education. These, these tier three students or these students that are underserved and underprivileged. I look at each one of them and say like, they, they need someone on their side. They, they don't have a lot of people on their side. And I know it's tough. And I know that they'll act out and they'll call names and they'll throw some, they'll steal something off your desk, but like they need support and they just don't know how to get it. So when we try to reach those students and try to help those students, there's so much we can do and success for each one of those students is different. We can't say success for every student is A's and B's and going off to college. You know, success is different for every single one of students and we have to praise their journey through school, even those ups and downs and work through them with them. So I think working in the juvenile justice field, it really opened up my eyes to, you know, what, what we can do to support just ending every kid overall. It's an interview that's first class, and if you want to hear it in its entirety, check episode 109. Next, we have episode 129, Power to the Late Bloomer. I know I've been guilty of being in awe and applauding kids that can do things way ahead of their age. You know, kids that amaze us with their music abilities on America's Got Talent, or the National Geographic champion that seems to know everything about the world by age 12. Well, our guest in episode 129 was Rich Carlgaard, and he wants to start a national dialogue about why it's essential to recognize that some people's prime comes a little later than others. Yeah, Joanne was one of those students who did well, but not great. You would call her high mediocre. Her her people in uh, high school and in her college don't seem to remember her, but one professor said she seemed to stare off into space and was dreamy. She listened to a lot of alternative rock music. She got into a bad marriage. She contemplated going to grad school, but didn't. She was a receptionist. She did things like that. And then she went into a spiral of depression after her divorce. She was on public assistance. And at age 35, while taking a train, Joanne, otherwise known as J.K. Rowling, Mm. dreamed up Harry Potter. Rich says that we, as Americans, have a very narrow idea of what K-12 education should be that it should be a conveyor belt. At the end of that conveyor belt, it deposits these kids into the best possible college that they can get into. Well, 
some kids are really going to succeed on that conveyor belt where they're subject to standardized tests. They're subject to homework that you can't believe. They're subject to the pressures of getting straight A's and advanced placement courses, et cetera, et cetera. And God bless you if your kids really thrive under that environment. But what I want to say loudly and assertively is that if they aren't succeeding in that regime, plan B isn't to double down. If we see kids succeeding at an early age, by all means, we should applaud their success, Rich says. But we also need to be sensitive to the signs of kids that are rebelling against the current system. It's a great perspective that we definitely should all consider. Third, we have the principal that will get you fired up, Hamish Brewer. All too often in education, we're too scared to tell someone, go out and be the best teacher on the planet. Oh, but don't have a competition. It's not a competition, but don't upset this person or that. Because that's that's not true, man. That's not how it rolls. Like, we should want every single teacher in our building striving to be the very best teacher on the planet. Because that's what we want for kids. It's like this whole concept of, oh, I'm going to tell you right now, kids in my building are not a label. We, we stopped defining our kids as a label. They weren't special education. They weren't ESOL. They weren't gifted. They were all our kids. You don't hide good instruction for certain kids. You bring out the best instruction for everybody because every kid deserves it. And we started making it about family, man. We, we, I have this saying, I, um, we enroll families. We don't enroll students. And when you start having this different thought process about your community and things you're doing, leaving a legacy, we put to work, our work became a legacy. We defined our work and our inspiration for changing communities and changing outcomes of school. And we wanted to leave a legacy of greatness and we wanted to be relentless. And then it started becoming what was happening on our walls. Like, you know, people like, oh, you've got these cool murals and that. Yeah, but that's not what it's about. It's not about the mural. It's about what it means. Your school is the expectation you set for it. Your school is the expectation. It becomes the expectation of the things, the vocabulary, the language, the visuals, the things kids get to see each and every day. That becomes the expectation of your school. In episode 54 and 55, Hamish teaches us how he turns around struggling schools, but most importantly, how he leads with love. If somebody didn't tell you today they love you, Mr. Brewer is telling you today that he loves you. Have a great day. Yeah, there's not enough love in the world, man. We, we forgot to tell kids we love them. We stopped using that word love, you know? And so many of our kids don't hear that word enough. And it doesn't matter if you're from a affluent school, poor school, middle school, high school, elementary school. It doesn't matter where you go. Kids still need to be loved and hear that they love them, you know? Kids are kids at heart. And so when even at the middle school, the kids are, they, they're like, if I don't, if I'm not on the announcements that day and say that, they know. And they're coming up and they're finding, Mr. Bro, we didn't, you didn't say you loved us today. And so you know you know it matters to them if they're chasing this down. And I tell the kids in the car all the time, I love you. Or if they're, if they're in some hot water with me, I, lo- I, I, don't lo- I don't like what you did, but I still love you. I love you, but I don't like what you did, you know? And so um, when you build a philosophy, if you build a culture and expectation around love, hard conversations can be had. It's real. It's authentic. And it's not fake. And kids see through fakeness all the time. But I hug my kids. I tell them I love them every day. And they have my back. 
Hamish's interview actually spans two episodes. So if you want to catch all of what he has to say, you can find that on episode 54 and episode 55. Last but not least, it's all about teaching reading comprehension. And the interview is with expert Jennifer Saravallo. She is the author of the Writing Strategies book, which many of you know, as well as the Reading Strategies book. And on this episode, she gives us tips from her book, which was titled Understanding Text and Readers. I also start off the the book with a story about a student who um, was sort of slipping through the cracks because the assessments that were being used to learn about her comprehension weren't really matching what she was doing every day. She was being assessed in short texts and then reading long long books and her teachers were sort of at a loss for where to go. L- let's drill down on that story you open up with. It- it's it's a student that you come across um, in the book. She's named Vanessa. Um, you were working in the Bronx District, um, and you were not the student's teacher. I guess you were there on professional development. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, I was, I was a, a staff developer working it, with the teachers there. Yeah, And you started working with her, and, and you knew kind of her story. She had been held back a few times, um, and she wasn't doing well on, I guess, the reading test for that area. Is that correct? Yeah, she she hadn't passed the state test, which is essentially a comprehension test. And yet the assessments that her teachers were using were supposed to be telling the teacher whether she was able to comprehend at certain levels of text. So it was sort of this mismatch between her the measure of comprehension on a grade level comprehension test and the measure of comprehension on a different grade level comprehension test. And so I guess your hypothesis was before you really even went deep into this was, you know, she, she can read these short excerpts, but when we give her a whole book, she's having trouble comprehending, right? Yes. Yeah. And what we discovered was after asking her to read a whole book and uh, we put these sticky notes inside the book. So along the way, she would have to stop and respond in writing to show what she was making sense of um, questions about characters and the main events in the plot and what figurative language meant and what big ideas she was getting from the themes and um, in the text. And it turned out to be that it was several grade levels, many reading levels and several grade levels difference between her whole book comprehension and her short text comprehension. And the skills specifically that we noticed she needed help with were ones that had to do with sequencing, um, synthesizing or putting events together, and also her stamina. And with those pieces in mind, it started to make sense of why she was having a hard time on the state test, which which challenged her stamina in a way that these um, other running record assessments didn't. Um, it was independent reading, quiet reading by yourself, usually over the course of an hour and a half or two hours. The texts were longer than what she was being asked to read. So, yeah, I, I feel like the the um, the different assessment helped us to see different variables. And those different variables helped us to pinpoint specific skills and strategies to work on with her that really helped make a difference. In our interview, Jennifer is a master at making sense of something that is sometimes hard to make sense of. Um, the way that I make sense of comprehension, I organize comprehension along these different goals that I first introduced in the Reading Strategies book. So for fiction, it's plot and setting, character, vocabulary, and figurative language, and themes and ideas. And for nonfiction, main idea, key details vocabulary and text features. And then within those goals are skills. And then within those skills are progressions that are laid on top of levels. So what I'm trying to argue in the book is that what getting it looks like for a kid who's reading a book like Frog and Toad is going to be different than what getting it looks like for a kid who's reading because of Winn-Dixie. And if we can, as teachers, know some things about text levels and the kinds of things to expect of those levels, 
um, then we can know some things about what to expect of reader response. Jennifer is a three-time guest on Class Dismiss, and you can catch her in episode 39, 72, and episode 174. We have had so many amazing guests on this show, and we hope to continue the trend. If you know of an educator who has a great story to tell, help us share that story with other educators. You can always email us ideas at info at classdismissedpodcast.com. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com or tweet us at classdismiss. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina, representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed. Thank you.